Could you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we openly request that you um, be gracious to us and help us to listen and especially help me to speak in the power of the Spirit so that our faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Thanks, you may be seated. Uh, David, I think you need to come sit in front of me because I don't want to keep turning around and even though I'm going to be preaching and I hope all of us listen, uh, you do need to listen particularly. (laughs) I need to make sure. I need to be able to look at you. (laughs) It is a joy to be all with all of you, uh, particularly joy to be with you, David, and with Tasha and your family. And then friends, you've got some people that have driven in from Durham from our part of the world. I guess you guys are neighbors. And I think you go to All Saints, right? Yeah, good to see you. Good? Yeah, okay. Well, you just, you know, mask up and all that kind of stuff. If you're out of place, who knows? You know what I mean? But you're smiling, I see. You're smiling. Good. Uh, you know, this is COVID time, kind of resurgence of COVID. It's a Saturday. Things have been disrupted lately. But I, uh, you know, you look around here. I want you to realize that there are people around here because they love you. They are for you. They support you. They want you to be an effective priest. And they are here to witness to that and to pray for you and to encourage you. And I want you to be assured that beyond what you see here are layers and layers of love and support from the people of God. And beyond that love and affection is the love and favor that cannot be measured from God himself. You know, Ryan and I had to arm wrestle and to decide who we were going to arm wrestle to decide who was going to preach the service. We started out with that, but clearly Ryan was winning. He has some years on me. Um, and not pull the bishop card. You know, every once in a while it's important to pull the bishop card. I, that automatically wins. You know, you automatically win when it happens. So anyway, so uh, I get to preach. David, as you well know, you are being ordained as a priest in the Diocese of Christ or Hope, which is an unusual name for a diocese. Uh, most dioceses have sort of a regional name or a geographic name. And we are a regional diocese, which means in the Anglican Church in North America that we do have a boundary, uh, although we're larger. It's a regional. And we cover a number of states and so on. But we had to come up with something. And somehow the name, the Diocese of the Eastern Time Zone from North Carolina to Maine and from the Atlantic to Kentucky, excepting Ohio, Michigan, and half of Indiana, uh, did not really have much of a ring to it. Okay, so we prayed and talked. And there was a young guy, 26 years old at that time, named Brandon Walsh, who you know and uh, Ryan knows, um, who said to me, sitting in a coffee shop in Kigali, Rwanda, Bishop, the world and my generation need desperately to know that we have hope, that we can have hope, and they need to know the hope that we have as Christians. And so we seized on that statement in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we named our diocese to remind us of that, Christ our hope. And picking up on that theme, I want to speak to you about hope. Hope in relationship to you and hope in relationship to your new and distinct ministry as a priest in the church of God. You are being ordained to be a shepherd of the flock of God, to take responsibility and authority to teach, to encourage, to love, to care, to seek the lost, to bring them together, to keep people together in Christ, to exhort where necessary, to make decisions on behalf of the body of Christ, to have courage for the gospel and for Jesus' sake. And you need to know hope. 
You need to know it personally, and you need to know it in your ministry. And so I want you to think about this phrase, the transformative power of Christian hope. You know, Christian hope is substantive. It's rock solid. It is not the way we usually talk about hope. We can talk about, I hope that it's warmer tomorrow. And you might know that because we read the weather report. I hoped that the bills would win. But how'd that do for me? You know what I mean? They lost the coin toss in overtime. It's because it's kind of a death knell in the NFL. They need to change the rule. But anyway, (laughs) amen, right? (laughs) Amen. But our hope in Christ is rock solid. And therefore, we have to kind of think it through. Do we actually believe when we say we have hope in Christ that the life of transformation can actually be ours? That hope actually works transformation into our soul that people can change. And that we can live towards something that is assuredly better and move toward that which is assuredly better in a way that we are actually literally being changed. So we are different people than we were a year ago or 10 years ago. And that we are free from things that used to bind us and we are healed of that which has wounded us and we are freed and healed from our weaknesses and infirmities in increasing manner toward a goal when we will be complete, we will see Christ and it will be finished. This movement. Now, obviously, there's lots of stories. And if we're in this curative ministry, the cure of souls, then certainly we should be able to look in the mirror, David, and see that God is changing us. But our hope is more, more solidly rooted than your change or my change or anybody else's change. In First Peter, the passage that was read to us, we read the substantive basis of our hope, its origins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope, a hope that lives, a life of hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a declarative statement. It's not kind of a wish statement. It's not kind of if you believe it statement. It's a declarative statement. You have been born again to a new life in Christ through the hope that is represented and embodied by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection concentrates and embodies our hope on an event that changes everything. You may have heard me talk about this before because I love to talk about it. The final enemy had had its full sway. The day of darkness had claimed its greatest victim and its greatest victory. The body of Jesus lay in the tomb. The stink had set in. It was three days after he died. It was in the Middle East. The smells had already started. The stenches were already there. But then suddenly, in a a moment as powerful as creation ex nihilo, and similar to that event, the forces of darkness faced an invasive power. (laughs) The Holy Spirit, the Lord, and the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is the Lord of life. And the stink of death vanished in an infant. It it, it just ran. And the great enemy began its great retreat from the physical body of Jesus. 
The moldering body was filled, I think probably from the heart, the chest, with supple warmth and youthfulness and vigor began to repenetrate the body. And I could just imagine, I could almost see it, I wish I could film it, you know what I mean? Uh, the rottenness and the decay yielded to health and life, surely as the night gives way to the dawn, or as fingers that are turned white by Raynaud's warm back up as your blood gets to the edges. I speak to my brother who has that. <laughs> And my wife has a severe case of renounce, if you know what that is. The burned out stump, blackened with fire and apparently lifeless, put forth a shoot of green life and Jesus rose from the dead. And he has become the bellwether and the icon of Christian hope, the first fruits of the new creation. And we see the resurrected Jesus through eyes of faith based on the testimony that has been given to us. If you come again tomorrow, we're going to talk about it again from another direction what our hands have handled concerning the word of life, John says. And we know that all will be well, and all things will be well, and all manner of things will be well. We can join St. Paul's victory shout in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ Jesus. We can take up the taunt. By the way, Christians, it's one time you're free to mock, okay? Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? And we can consider the breathtaking scope of hope in this passage in 1 Peter. We're not going to do that, but I encourage you to look at it because that first three sentences, excuse me, verses 3, 4, and 5 are a mouthful of hope. And from there, the book emerges. It's a theme that runs through the book of 1 Peter so that by the time he gets to chapter 4, he says, be ready to give a defense for the hope to explain why you are a person of hope to those who would mock you and reject you. But what they cannot deny is your hope. It's that powerful. It's so evident in you. Now, you know these things well, David. But the question again is, I want to explore the transformative power of that. How does it work? Well, I'm going to take a short stroll through the book of 2 Corinthians. And I don't mean the whole book, but I'm just mentioning a few things. I could go much further, but I want to mention five things in the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul, in that victory shout, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph, you can see that his heart was rooted in the hope. Always leads us in triumph. And he was speaking that, by the way, in that moment out of a context which he describes himself as a moment, a season of despair and hopelessness where he gave up on the hope of life itself, but he nevertheless held on to hope in Christ. He was depressed. He was anxious. So he's, he's open about that. But nevertheless, he says, I'm always going to be walking in victory. Because he was a man rooted in hope, there are five powerful implications. First, he personally, he was radically vulnerable before God. Chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And so basically what he's saying is, I'm not like Moses, who both veiled his face so that the, because the glory was fading. I am not like that. I can take the veil off, and I can stand before God unpretending. I'm not coming with my accomplishments or my labors so I can make sure that he approves of me because of how hard I've worked or what earnestness I've had. 
But I can come as a child. I can come laid out. I can come in vulnerability and weakness, hiding nothing, knowing and experiencing at the same time the renewal and depth of the grace in my life as I stand before the Lord in my weakness. In other words, brothers and sisters, and you, David, in particular, seize upon the fact your life is not defined by your weaknesses. It is not defined by your failures. It is not defined by your struggles. It's defined by the commitment of Jesus Christ to you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Psalm 63. David prays that I may see your glory and your power. Seek to see the glory of the God in the face of Jesus Christ. Take the veil off. Stand before him as you are so that you can turn your eyes toward him. And seeing Christ inevitably calls you to be renewed in grace, which fuels hope in you. Because God meets your weakness and your humanity with his grace. That's how he responds. That's how he responds to you. There's this beautiful quote on humility that I didn't bring with me what I wish I had. It's in my car. But basically it begins like this. Humility is the attitude of someone who always stands or stands constantly before the judgment of God. In other words, I stand there ready for God to speak the truth about me. Knowing that beyond the truth about me, his answer is mercy, grace, mercy, grace. So quit pretending. Quit pretending. Quit pretending with God. Um, as recent as two days ago on Thursday, I had a challenge in my ministry that was probably one of the stiffest challenges I think I've ever faced in my life. And it had been building up for several months. And Thursday morning as I was preparing to start this challenge, I literally was shaking. I was so afraid. Yeah, I was. And I thought, but I've got to go there. And so how do I go there? I go there shaking <laughs> in prayer. I go there shaking and in prayer. And I go there believing that the Spirit of God is there. And you walk into that shaking in the power of the Spirit. You go from shaking in fear for shaking in the power of the Spirit as you obey him in faith. That's how we live. Second, and this is personal as well, because of hope, Paul was driven to live into the hope. In other words, to pursue the end in his own character and life. Verse 17 of chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, is there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding in the, glory, in the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. And as you read through the text, that means because what Paul did was he began to participate in the hope. He began to, he got, he began to live toward the hope. He began to see where he was headed and live to become that person. Again, many places in Scripture that I could point to. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17 is a great one. Seeking Christ who's seated at the heavens, in the heavens. Seeking him. And therefore, because you're seeking him and you're fixed on him and you know that's where you're headed, put off, put on. Live it out in your morals, your ethics, your choices, your obedience. My favorite passage in all of this matter is 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. We're his children now, but what we will be, we don't know yet. It hasn't yet appeared. But we know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the hope. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So there's this process that we know that's what we're going to become, so I'm going to live toward that. I'm going to live in accordance with who I will become. And I will live that in terms of my active decisions about love and joy and patience and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and dealing with moral and ethical battles and practical, real obediences. So hope, a lot of times we say it's an anchor for our soul, but I think it's more of a winch system. We lived in Canada for a number of years, and you guys live in a little bit of a cool climate yourself, okay? And we would go up into the mountains because we lived near, near the mountains, and there's lots and lots of snow. And uh, you would, every once in a while, you know, it was, it was pretty frightening to be uh, driving on some of those roads and mountains and, you know, six feet of snow and all you know, every, you know, that kind of stuff. But a lot of people had winches, of course, and attached to their trucks. And it was so amazing to uh, see what would happen when a winch, when somebody would go off the road and somebody would come along with a winch system. And I've, I've seen this before. I mean, I've seen people off the side of the road and I'm standing there going, gosh, I sure wish I could help you and I love you. And, you know, if you want to come, you know, I wish, you know, be warmed, be filled. I'll see you later. You know what I mean? Just like it says in the Bible. But anyway, uh, so, but somebody else would come along with a winch system. And they would fix their car, and they would put the winch on the bumper, you know, attach it to it, and then they would start to pull the car out, okay? That, to me, is what hope is. It's like fixed. You grab onto it, latch onto it, and let it pull you. You move toward where you're going to become. That's transformation. Now, shift that to how this begins to work in your ministry. Because that's the way he lived... Paul was able to be vulnerable before the people he served. Chapter 4, verse 1. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. We refuse to practice hiddenness. We refuse to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You could just run through this book, guys, if you ever want to, in the book of 2 Corinthians. It's astonishing how vulnerable Paul is. He, as I've already mentioned, talked about his depression, his despair, his anxiety. And that's even more amazing because of the recipients, because there was no church that was full that had more detractors and more critics of Paul than the, than the Corinthian church. And yet he was determined to be honest before them, even when he was admitting his own weaknesses and needs. He was putting himself at risk of people who had shown themselves more than willing to take a strip off his hide. So David, in your priestly ministry, as you seek, this is this really fascinating thing because the authority that you've been given and the calling that you've been given means that you have the authority to be the shepherd of the flock, but you also, as a Christian man, have the freedom and, in fact, the responsibility to embody before them the vulnerability that they need in order to find the gospel for themselves. Additionally, because of hope, he was willing to spend his life for them. 
And again, the book of 2 Corinthians talks about how he was being poured out for the service of their love. I am dying so that you may live, is what he says, basically. I die so you live. I use my life for your sake. And that wasn't bragging. He was just simply saying, I am giving everything away for your sake. And I can do that because I know the end of the story for me. I know I'm going to be okay. No matter how much it costs me, even if it kills me, literally. I mean that. Because Paul said, I'm facing death. And it's okay. Because I'm okay. And we don't really have often to face that radical thing, if ever, in, in our culture. But I do think we constantly have to ask the question, will you give yourself away? Or, alternatively, we try to control everybody and keep everybody under your control. Or, alternatively, will you pay it safe, play it safe and never say anything hard? You know, what is the point of risk for you? Where is the point of risk? Where's the point where you're risking your life, quote unquote, for the sake of people? And it will come in every direction. And so I encourage you that it's because of hope that you're able to really literally pour your life into people. Because you know that you will be sustained through the process and you will be restored and delivered in the end. And then one final point about the impact of hope in ministry that Paul believed he believed that others could truly be transformed by the grace and love of God. And therefore, he was able to always encourage the people of God, there is hope for you, there is healing for you, there is a future for you. There is some place in which you are becoming the daughter of God, the son of God. You are moving toward that, and the Spirit of God is pulling you. Don't resist it, because you are being moved toward your future. That's the promise of God. Now seek where you're going to become and participate in that process. And you say that again and again. Paul says in this book, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I think he literally looked through, looked at people and he said, I just refuse to see you as you are defined by your flesh. I will see you as you are defined in Christ and I will love you to that end, and I will call you to that end, and I will seek to build a shape for you so that you can see the shape of what your life can become. And I will love you well enough to give you constant hope that you too can be transformed. And that's pastoring people. That's the cure of souls. That is the healing ministry of your calling. You know, brother, we put too little weight on the stories of transformation that are routine in the body of Christ. They are all around us. We rarely pause to take serious note of the amazing life of grace that's operative sitting in this room right now. And if we were to look behind and listen well enough, I think we would hear stories of miracles all over this room right now. If I had one thing I could redo over the course of my life, I would worry less about people. I would be less quick to fear failure in them. I would have more confidence that God is literally at work, and I would give them a smile and say, God's working in you, buddy. God's working in you, dear. I see amazing fruits of the work of God in your life. Be encouraged and live toward the future. So let me recap. I think hope 
this gift that we are given, this life that we're given, enables us to be radically vulnerable before God as we seek the face of God with nothing between us. In other words, we've laid ourselves all of our pretense and we're just coming. We're coming naked. We're coming like a child. It enables me and you and all of us to seek to conform our life now to who we will be in eternity. So we enter into a life of change and transformation. And I thank God that I am not who I used to be. And I thank God I am not what I will be. But that I'm becoming what I will be. That's amazing. It's amazing. It enables you and your ministry to be vulnerable and open before the people you serve. So you can, I don't want you to make your story the substance of your ministry. But be prepared when it's appropriate to bring that to bear. And even when you don't bring it to bear, have within you the sympathy uh, when people are being vulnerable to you to know that you understand because you too share this. It gives you the opportunity to be radically satis- uh, sacrificial, even to give your life away for the life of Christ in them. And it call, live, enables you to call for and believe in the transformative work of God and the power of God to bring people into the new creation. These are the postures of a man of hope. David, there are familiar phrases that I and others have found compelling and shaping for a deeply spiritual life and a rightly ordered ministry. Uh, the first couple of them, we are uh, literally plundering the Egyptians on these, on these, okay? So Orpheus, the story of Orpheus, uh, is introduced to this concept that now I capture called the expulsive power of a greater love. The expulsive power of a greater love. The story of Orpheus is a beautiful one. If you want to know, I'll tell you later, Okay. Uh, Nietzsche gave us one, of all people. (laughs) The long obedience in the same direction, right? Well, to those two, I want to add the transformative power of substantive hope. And I commend you, brother, to mine the depths of Christian hope in your own life and ministry. And I ask you to please help us live up to our name as a diocese. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.